Thank you for joining us for this broadcast from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. We hope that you will subscribe and will share our broadcast with others. Now, we take you to the pulpit of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. Good morning. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. I, I appreciate the opportunity by the elders to allow me to speak to you. You know, I had mentioned to them some time back that whenever... Matthew or, or, or Jonathan was going to be away and you needed somebody to fill in. And I think Jonathan may have, was supposed to be away and, and, uh, and that's how it came about. But, uh, but I had expressed to them the desire uh, to speak because uh, I've shared this with my, with several people and share this with you as well, that I have a desire one day to make a preacher and, uh, but I need practice. And, uh, and so, uh, I appreciate the opportunity so much by the elders that allowed me to speak to you today. The, uh, our lesson this morning is going to be entitled, A House of Prayer, A House of Prayer. And I would ask that you would be patient as we develop this lesson because we're going to get about halfway into this lesson and you're going to say, where's the prayer? You know, when are we going to talk about prayer? But this morning... We're going to talk about two events that occurred in the life of Jesus, in particular during the earthly ministry of Jesus. And these two events, they bookend the ministry of Jesus. The first event happened in the what we believe was the, the first few months of Jesus' ministry, while the second event happened in the final days of Jesus' ministry. In fact, it happened on a Monday, four days before Jesus was crucified, before he was nailed to the cross. And these two events that occurred during the ministry of Jesus are almost identical. The first event, uh, or the two events in which we're talking about this morning, is the cleansing of the temple. The cleansing of the temple. I want to get my phone set here so I don't have to hunt up some things. But the cleansing of the temple. You know, most people don't know that Jesus cleansed the temple twice during his earthly ministry. And so the first cleansing of the temple occurred in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 20. And we read, And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, some translations may say pigeons, and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple. And the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. So we see that Jesus, he comes into the temple, you know, that this is the first Passover that Jesus observed during his earthly ministry. You know, some people believe that Jesus' earthly ministry consisted of about 
two and a half years, while others believe that it was as long as three and a half years. And, you know, some believe that the book of John, you know, we talked about the other day when we were talking about the parables of Jesus and how that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that they record for us the parables. But the book of John does not record any of the parables of Jesus. But there are things in the book of John, though, that are special that some believe that John, that he records all of the Passovers that Jesus observed during his earthly ministry. And there were three of them that are recorded in the book of John. But if that's the case, then that means Jesus' ministry was only about two and a half years. So there are many respected scholars, and I, I tend to agree that there may have been a Passover in between John chapter 2 and John chapter 6 that's not recorded. So that would mean that there was four Passovers, and that would mean that Jesus' earthly ministry consisted of three and a half years. And one of the reasons why that, that so many respected scholars believe that it was three and a half years is when you look at the life of Jesus, and, and you know he's walking everywhere he went, where him and his disciples, when they traveled, they walked, and you look at all the places that they went, that it would have been very difficult, they say, to travel all of the miles that Jesus traveled, and to accomplish everything that he accomplished and to do that in three and a half years. So that's why there is some difference of opinion. But we're in John chapter 2 here. This is the first cleansing of the temple. Now, the reason that I think that it's so important for us to engage a study on this, because I believe that Jesus, that he was trying to teach us some things. He was trying to teach us some things about how corrupt that the rulers had become in his day, that the rulers that were to, to guide over, to, to watch over his people and to guide his people and to teach his people, they had become so corrupt, and as a result, that the people suffered greatly as a result of it. They had corrupted the worship of God in the temple. You had these money changers. They were exchanging money. They were exchanging currencies. You see, the currency of the day, the accepted currency, was that of the Roman and the Greek currency. That was what was used in everyday life. But see, these scribes and these Pharisees, the, the scribes and the chief priests, rather, they were in charge of the temple and the temple grounds. And they had deemed that, that you can't pay your temple tax with Roman and Greek currency, that you can't purchase the sacrificial animals that they were offering there in that part of the temple. You can't purchase them with this Roman and Greek money because it has the image of a man on it. And that would be idolatry. So they said, you have to exchange your money for the Jewish currency, for the shekel, and, um, and, uh, and you have to do this because that's the currency of God. That's the currency of heaven. But what they had done that corrupted this thing so is they had added this tremendous surcharge to the purchasing of the sacrificial animals. They had this tremendous fee attached to the exchanging of currency. Some have said that, that it was as high as 15% or more. So you had, this, you had this issue that they were taking advantage of the people charging these excessive fees just in order for them to worship. And, and Jesus became so angry as a result of this. Now, we don't know when that this practice began. 
We don't know if this began at the before Jesus was born or whether this began during the life of Jesus. We don't know that if it was something that had come about just leading up to Jesus' earthly ministry. We have no idea when this began, but the reason that I asked the question is that whenever this began, it will give us some insight as to when the leadership of God's people had began to become so corrupted and 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 just so uh, and 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 so and when they had become began to drift so far away from what God would have had them to be. So Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2 is a very important passage of Scripture because in Luke chapter 2, we're given a little, a little snapshot, if you will, into the life of Jesus because, you know, we know so little about the life of Jesus before he began his earthly ministry. We know about Jesus' birth, the virgin birth. We know about the, uh, how that he had, they had his parents. They had to take him to Egypt to flee Herod when he sought the life of the child. We know all the things that was fulfilled, that was spoken of by the prophets, where he was born. He was born in Bethlehem. We know that he grew up in Nazareth, that he was a Nazarene. But when you look at the childhood of Jesus and you look at all this time before he began his earthly ministry, we know very little about that. You know, the scholars, they believe that Jesus was probably born about B.C. 6, about 6, between 6 and 4 B.C. Now, the reason they believe this is there's, 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 uh, there's little clues and little hints. You know, it talks about Herod. And see, Herod died during that time. So Herod the Great, you know, that's why they think that Jesus was probably born somewhere around 6 to 4 B.C. And so in, in, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 41 here, Jesus is 12 years old. And so if that's the case, if he was born around 6 B.C. or 4 B.C., then that would make this about A.D. 9, you know, give or take a year. And so Jesus is 12 years old, and we're given a little bit of a snippet into the life of Jesus here. And it says that his parents went up to Jerusalem every year to observe the Passover. They went up to worship. They didn't do this some years or almost every year. They went up every year to Jerusalem to worship, to observe the Passover, to observe the feast, the holiest day of the year, so that sacrifices might be made. And Jesus had been took, taken to Jerusalem, to the house of his father, every year since the time he was an infant. And it says that Jesus was 12 years old and that after they had observed the Passover, when the days were fulfilled with the feast, that, that they began to uh, make their journey home. And remember, they live in Nazareth, and as a bird flies, Nazareth is about 60 miles from Jerusalem, but this mountainous terrain. And so, you know, if it was actually 75 or 80 miles and, and the terrain and all of that, it would have been a several days journey. But they had started to head home, and they had attached themselves to a party, and they get about a day's journey out of, out of Jerusalem, and they realize that Jesus is not with them. And so they search for him amongst their kinfolk and their friends, and they can't find him, and they return to Jerusalem. And when they turn to Jerusalem, and when they return to Jerusalem, three days later, they find Jesus. 
And you know where they find Jesus? They find Jesus in the temple. And it says, the King James Version says that he was sitting in the midst of the doctors. Now, it's not talking about medical doctors. He was sitting in the midst of the doctors of the law. Because remember at this time, Jerusalem, you know, the holy mountain of God, the holy city of God, that this was the center of the universe when it come to the worship of Almighty God. And so here in Jerusalem, you would have the greatest minds on the face of the planet concerning the law and concerning the prophets. And here Jesus, he's sitting in the midst, 12 years old. He's sitting in the midst of these doctors, and his mother finds him, and his mother comes to him and says, Son, why have you dealt with us so? You know, it says that in the King James Version that they had been searching for him sorrowfully, and if I can say it, and that, in other words, they, she had been searching for him in tears. She was frantic. And when she finds him, she says, why have you dealt with us so? And Jesus, you can just almost hear him in his humble and his meek voice. Remember, he's 12 years old. The Bible says he was always in subjection to his parents. This thing that he done, he was not being disobedient to his mother because remember, Jesus had a father, and Jesus' father was, was God. He was the almighty God, and, and it says that, that he was in the temple, and Jesus answers her and says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That's the English Standard Version. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? The King James Version says, Wist you not that I must be about my father's business? So I believe here that we have a picture of Jesus at 12 years old. He's sitting in the midst of these doctors of the law, the greatest minds on the planet concerning the law and the prophets. And, and it says, notice this, it says that first he was listening. He was listening, and then it says that he was asking questions and that he was answering questions. And it says that these doctors of the law, these great minds, that they were astonished at his, at his sayings, at the, at the answers that he was giving them. And the reason that I say that it's so important to look back concerning the lesson in which we're talking about this morning, because remember, the question that we're asking is when did the leaders of God, when did the scribes and the chief priests and the high priests, when did they become so corrupted? Because here, if this is about AD 9, this would be about 18 to 20 years before Jesus would begin his earthly ministry. And so here we see that, they're, that he's listening, he's asking questions, he's interacting with the, the great minds of the day. We don't see any signs of corruption here. We see that they were in astonishment. So I bring this out. We don't know when this practice started. We don't know when things began to be so bad and go south with the leadership of God. But it could be here that the reason that God had his son at 12 years old in his house, in the temple of God, is that maybe there was these seeds that had already began to, to uh, germinate and to, um, and to infest and corrupt 
the teachers. And maybe it was Jesus was there and that he was listening and that he was asking questions and that he was answering questions and he was trying to invoke illicit thought, that he was trying to get them to see the important things concerning the law because we know that 18 years later, 20 years later, when Jesus is in the midst of his earthly ministry, we know how corrupt that the teachers, that those who were to lead over God's people, those who had been charged to raise up a people that was holy and acceptable unto God, they had so corrupted the people. We know that because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23, he said, Woe unto you, scribes and, and hypocrites, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. He said, For you pay tithe of anise, mint, and common. And he said, But you have omitted the weightier matters of the law, such as judgment, mercy, and faith. So Jesus, 18, 20 years later, he said, you pay these tithes of these little herbs that you raise in your garden, and you think you're so righteous. You think you're so good, but you have lost sight of the real important things. You've lost sight of judgment, mercy, and faith. Jesus said these are the weightier matters of the law. So that's why we look back at this, and we ask ourselves the question, when did God's People. When did God's leaders, when did his teachers begin to become so corrupt that, um, um, and so we come to the second event in Mark chapter 11. If you want to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Now, this is at the end of Jesus's earthly ministry, this is on the Monday before the Friday that Jesus would be crucified. It says that, that, Jesus, that they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple, and he began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple. He overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves or pigeons and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught them, saying unto them, is it not written that my father's house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? But ye have made it a den of thieves. Ye have made it a den of robbers. And it says that when the scribes and the chief priests heard it, that they sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because of the people. And that the people, because the people were in sheer astonishment, of this. So this is the second event, and that it's four days before he would be nailed to the cross, that he goes to the temple, that he cast out those that bought and sold. Remember, we talk about this excessive fee, this excessive um, 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 surcharge that they had placed on it, and that the selling of the sacrificial animals. But you know, in spite of all this, did you know what the most egregious thing that they were guilty of, is that it was where this was happening. It's the part of the temple that all this was going on. Because, you see, we believe that the part of the temple where this was happening is called the court of the Gentiles. Because Jesus says, Is it not written in my Father's house that, that my Father's house should be a house of prayer for all 
the nations. You see, the court of the Gentiles, that was the place where the non-Jew could come and worship. We talked about that this morning in our class very briefly, that when Solomon, when he built the original temple that, that in, 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 in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 6, uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter, or 2 Chronicles chapter 6, that, uh, that we find Solomon praying and that um, in his prayer, he makes mention of the stranger from, that come from the faraway land that would worship God, that would respect God. And people have this idea that God didn't care about the non-Jew, that God didn't care about the Gentile, but that's completely not true. Because you see, this court of the Gentiles, this was where the non-Jew could come and worship it is where that those of all the nations could come and be introduced to the one true and living God. It was where those who had known, that had known only idolatry and paganism, they could come and know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was this place that God had, tend, it had intended for prayer to be made. It was this place that God had intended for intercession to be made for all the lost of all the nations. And what had the scribes and Pharisees done? They had turned this place into a robber's den. And notice Jesus also said that, that notice it says that Jesus, that he would allow no one to come through or to pass through that area because it will appear that they had just made it a shortcut, that they would cut through there with their wheelbarrow or whatever they had, and there was just all kind of traffic coming through there. And Jesus, that he would not allow anyone to pass through that area because this was the court of the Gentiles. This was where the non-Jew could come and worship God. This is where those that had come out of all of the evil and the paganism could be introduced to the one true and living God. Our young people this morning, I understand that Kevin, that they talked about the Ethiopian eunuch uh, in their lesson this morning. And you know what? This is the place. Remember Philip, the angel of the Lord, uh, 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 called him up and said, you go down here on, into this deserted place on the way from Gaza and you wait for this, this eunuch, this, this man of great authority that he's coming from Jerusalem. He's been to Jerusalem to worship. He's been up on the holy mountain of God. And you know what? He had been to, most likely, he had been to this court of the Gentiles to worship. And God saw that man he saw that person who had been proselyted into the Jewish faith. and But see, he didn't know about Christ. He didn't know about the new covenant. But God, the, Holy, the angel of the Lord told Philip, said, you go down there and you're going to meet this Ethiopian eunuch and you're going to tell him about Jesus. And, and he did just that. Remember when he was down there on the way and the Ethiopian eunuch come to him, he had a scroll. And we know that he was reading from Isaiah chapter 53 and, and the... Um, and, 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 and Philip asked him, he said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And the eunuch said, How can I except some man teach me? Because the eunuch, as he read, as he read Isaiah chapter 53, he said, and where it talks about a la the la as a lamb being led to the slaughter, he, he asked Philip, he said, Is this man, is he talking about himself? 
or some other man. And it says that Philip stepped up into the chariot and he began right there preaching unto him Jesus. What a powerful lesson. But we also see how powerful it is that God, that he loved the non-Jew, that he loved this eunuch, and he wanted him to know about Jesus. The court of the Gentiles was a place that God had intended for prayer to be made. He had intended for it to be a place of intercession. Yet, instead of them being introduced to the one true God, they were introduced to a sham. You know, the people of the world, they know a fraud when they see it. You know, when we try to talk to the people of the world about Jesus and about living the Christian life, if they don't see something different and peculiar about us, if they don't see Jesus living in us and we start trying to tell them about Jesus, they'll recognize it right off. They'll recognize us for the fraud that we are. That's why that our, our example, that our influence is so important. Because if all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're on fire for the Lord, but, you know, all the other times you've been around these folks, you ain't been on fire for the Lord, people are, will recognize that. And that's why that it's so important that we get up every morning with our eyes focused on Jesus, our hearts and our minds and our souls and our spirit. And then we keep our eyes focused on him all the time and we understand the greatness of our influence. But they realized what a sham that it was. This was a place of, to be a place of prayer and, and intercession for all the nations. But the scribes and the chief, chief priests, they had defiled that place. Because you see, they didn't care about the non-Jew. They didn't care about the lost from all the other nations. They had wandered so far away from God. They had drifted so far away from what God would have them to be that they had lost sight of what was really important. They had lost sight of the weightier matters that existed. And so that brings us, we have four Short points, and these are going to be brief. They're not going to be long. Number one, because when we look at the cleansing of the temple, these two events, Jesus is trying to tell us some things. He's trying to make us aware of the flaws that existed in the leadership, and he's trying to make us aware of what's really important. And we want to touch on those very briefly, and then the lesson will be yours. Number one, beware of unfruitfulness. You know... You know what it, it, it took for these scribes and these Pharisees and these chief priests? You know what it took for them to drift so far away from God? The same thing that it takes for us to drift away from God. And that is absolutely nothing. All we have to do is nothing. It's like the third law of spiritual dynamics. When you do nothing, you drift away from God. We must continually be in this spirit of drawing nigh unto God. We must continually be striving to draw near unto God because if you're not, then you're drifting and you're wandering away from God. Jesus said that a tree is known by the fruit that it bears. Earlier, let's skip over that because we're running out of time. Earlier that same morning, because this is so important. 
earlier that same morning, and if you got your Bibles open, all you got to do is back up just a few verses. But remember, it's, it's, it was on up in the day Monday when Jesus entered into the temple, when he cleansed the temple. Well, earlier that morning, it says that, that, they, that Jesus, he had left Bethany, and that Bethany was about two miles from the temple mount. And they had left Bethany, and they, they were on the way to the temple mount that Jesus, he saw a fig tree and leaf from a distance. And as he approached the fig tree, it says that, um, um, that well, let's just, let's just read it very quickly. And they came to Jerusalem, and, uh, well, maybe I don't, oh. but it's in, it's in, uh, um, it's in just the previous verse, but Jesus, he saw this fig tree and leaf, and he approached it to see if it had anything on it. And when he got to it, that all it had was leaves. But the scripture also tells us that it wasn't the season for figs, and that Jesus, he curses this fig tree. And the next morning, when it was Tuesday morning, by then, when they came by, that fig tree had already withered up and died from the roots up. And, uh, and you know, that passage has confounded so many people, and it confounded me because, you know, he saw this fig tree and leaf, but it wasn't the season for figs, but he went to it to see if there was something on it. Now, we're talking about Jesus, you know, uh, Jesus, uh, the Word, he who created all things. He knew the cycle of a fig tree. He knew when it was in season and when it wasn't in season, but he went to that fig tree to find something because, remember, it says that he was hungry. And that, uh, but what I found out about a fig tree is that depending on the different climate that it's in and depending on the elevation, remember Jerusalem's about 2,500 feet above sea level, that fig trees have different characteristics in, in the way that they produce. But I understand that in Jerusalem, that a fig tree, that when it puts on leaves, that a good productive fig tree, that before it puts on Figs that that many times, almost always, that it will produce these little buds, and these little buds were something that the poor people eat because these buds they weren't very tasty, but you know they would fill your belly. They had a little bit of sustenance, so it would appear that that's what Jesus was looking for were these little buds, and you know that kind of breaks your heart, don't it? When you think about the Son of the Living God, that He was hungry. And he, and he goes to this fig tree just to find a few buds to maybe quieten down the gnawing and the hunger in his belly. But he curses that fig tree, and he said, Never again will you bring forth fruit. And it says that that fig tree died from the roots up. But the picture that Jesus is painting for his disciples and for us as well is the picture of the religious leaders of his day. You see, the Old Testament prophets, they used the fig tree to symbolize the nation of Israel. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, look at this fig tree. It looks so good. It looks so productive. It has leaves, but it's completely unfruitful. It is good for nothing. And this is what, in essence, that the religious leaders 
of, of Jesus' day looked like. Because you see, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they looked so righteous on the outside. They were so pious. They thought they were so good. You know, even the people thought that, you know, they're, they're pretty good. When in actuality, Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He said that for you're like whited sepulchers that appear beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. These, these religious leaders, they look so good on the outside, but Jesus said on the inside, they're corrupt. They're full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Secondly, beware of rationalizing your sin. They were taking advantage of the people of God who were simply trying to worship. Every male that was 20 years old and older was required by the law to pay a half shekel temple tax. Every person that was of, of age had to bring a sacrifice, the proper sacrifice to be made, where in the end that atonement might be made and the rolling forward of sins be, might be made. But here we see that when they come to do that, we see that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, that they had corrupted that temple, they had corrupted that part of the temple in the court of the Gentiles. They were, they were charging the people this excessive fee. They were preying on the people of God. They were making profit of them. They had to pay these excessive upcharges for the sacrificial animals, and it was placing undue financial stress upon God's people, especially the poor. But the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the chief priests, they said to themselves, they said, why, we're offering a service here that, after all, there's still worship going on here. This thing that we're doing, it's a good thing. Hey, it wasn't a good thing. It was a terrible thing. It was a terrible thing that they were doing because this court of the Gentiles, remember, it was to be a place of prayer. They had rationalized their sin to the extent they were profiting off of God's people and they had convinced themselves that what they were doing was so right. And instead of, uh, instead of praying, only for, instead of praying for the people, P-R-A-Y-I-N-G, these religious leaders, they were praying on the people. P-R-E-Y-I-N-G. So we see the picture of how corrupt that the leadership of God's people had become. They had rationalized their sin to the extent that also that when they heard this, instead of them receiving Jesus' teaching and, and looking within themselves and saying, you know what, we, you know, we need to rethink this. You know, this, he's right. You know, this thing that we're doing is not a good thing. It's a terrible thing. But instead of doing that, what did they do? They become angry and they sought how that they might destroy him. Thirdly, beware of ritualizing your worship. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, they had drifted so far away from God that they were just going through the motions. Their worship had just become ritualistic. They had defiled the house of God and made it into nothing more than a social club. Jesus said, Is it not written that my Father's house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? 
but they were concerned with their positions of authority and with the power that came with it. And as a result, God's people suffered greatly. Jesus said that the people, that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus had great compassion upon them. And it says that Jesus taught them many things. Mark chapter 6 and verse 34. When we ritualize our worship, it just becomes habit. And there's no passion for God. There's no passion for the Savior. There's no passion in the work in which we're doing. There's no passion for the lost uh, that need to know about Jesus. That when we just go through the motions, then, then, uh, then, then, then there's no power in that kind of service. And God's not pleased with that kind of service. It just becomes lip service, if you will. Jesus said that this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Matthew 15 and verse 8. And then finally, our last point, and this is where we get to the prayer part. Remember, a house of prayer. That's what we're talking about this morning, the cleansing of the temple. If Jesus has taught us anything this morning, then it, about these two events, the cleansing of the temple, it's that we should be aware of unfruitfulness, we should be aware of rationalizing our sins, we should be uh, on guard of our, our worship, become ritualistic, because you see, that's what the religious leaders of his day, that's what they had turned into, that's what they had become. But Jesus says that my Father's house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. There's power in prayer. Romans chapter 6, or Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 says that, that for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's power in the word of God. But that power is most effective when it is paired with the with, with prayer, with prayer that comes from the heart, with fervent prayer. In Acts chapter 2, remember Jesus, and in, in leading up to Acts chapter 2, remember Jesus before he ascended into heaven, that he told his disciples, he said, you remain here in Jerusalem until you be endowed with power. And preachers for years and years and years have said that they waited in that upper room for 10 days and that they were praying. And on the day of Pentecost, it says that the Holy Spirit came upon them and filled the whole room in which we, they were at. And that they, they went and they began to preach unto the people. And so preachers have said that, you know what? They prayed for 10 days and they preached for 10 minutes and 3,000 souls were saved. Now, we know that's an exaggeration, but seriously, they prayed for 10 days, they preached for a short period of time, and all of these thousands responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In, in Acts chapter 4, in verse 31, remember that that remember that that Peter and John had been thrown into prison. This was just a few weeks after Jesus' uh, ascension into heaven, uh, maybe a month or so, two months, three months. It was very soon thereafter. And remember that Annas 
and Caiaphas, the very ones that con condemned Jesus to death, that they had Peter and John thrown into prison. They had done this notable, notable miracle in the name of Jesus, and they commanded Peter and John, and they said, you can't speak anymore in that name. And remember Peter, and they threatened them. They threatened them with their lives. And remember Peter and John said, how can we but speak the things in which we have seen and heard. And it says in, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, that, and when they had prayed, that that place was shaken where they assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. So we see that there is great power in prayer. We're not saying that we're not calling for, for prayer to see this building physically shaken. We're not, we're not saying that we should call in prayer to see the, the waters parted or, or miracles occurred, but know this. What we're saying is, is that when we get serious about our prayer life, that when we get truly committed to our prayer life, that it is then and only then that we will see God's hand on this place, that we will see God's hand on the work in which we're doing. You know, I was brought to tears almost yesterday when I heard about Hunter responding to the gospel. We're so proud of Hunter, but you know what? We need a lot of other people obeying the gospel and coming to Christ. I know I've had so many conversations with so many of you. I know that so many of you that you want to see this church, that you want to see this house become a house of prayer. And that's our prayer, that's our hope, that's our desire. The lesson is yours this morning. I hope that you have found this beneficial. If you're here this morning and you've never been baptized into Christ, why won't you do that this morning? Why won't you become and be immersed into them waters? There's no power in that water at all. But it's when a person answers with, with, with in obedience to a, to a heart filled with faith, it's a result of the grace of God sending His Son Jesus and shedding His blood because you see, when we're immersed into that watery grave of baptism, it is there that we contact the blood, the spiritual blood of Jesus Christ. And when we're baptized into His death and we come up out of that water, we are risen in newness of life. We become new creatures in Christ. If you've not done that, won't you do that this morning? If you're here and you need to, to, to come forward and, and, and make some wrong right, if you need just the prayers of the church, won't you come while we stand and sing? If this program has been beneficial to you, please consider subscribing on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast provider. Also, we'd love for you to leave us a five-star review, which will greatly assist us in getting the message of God's love and salvation to others. We'd love even more for you to join us in person. We are located at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
be sure to join us again. And until then, remember, we are a church of Christ caring for its community. Yeah.